Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights, and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. I'm very pleased to introduce Deborah Schwartz to the podcast. Deborah is the Managing Director of Impact Investments at the MacArthur Foundation and is part of the Executive Leadership Team at the Foundation. The MacArthur Foundation has dedicated $500 million of its assets to impact investing, primarily supporting economic development and affordable housing organizations in the United States. Deborah also leads the creation of new impact investment products and platforms that foster easier, more efficient and more productive connections among multiple impact investors and social sector organizations. A former investment banker, she joined MacArthur in 1995, having also previously worked at a Chicago-based child welfare agency. Deborah is a frequent speaker and guest lecturer and has also served on the United States Treasury Department Community Development Advisory Board and the founding board for the Mission Investors Exchange. The Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Echoing Green. Echoing Green drives social progress further, faster, via its Global Social Entrepreneurship Fellowship, now running for 30 years. Echoing Green's new Impact Investment Programme aims to bridge the gap between impact investors and social entrepreneurs. To help social entrepreneurs better access finance, to build stronger, more resilient social ventures. You can find out more at echoinggreen.org. Thank you very much, Deborah, for joining me today and talking to me on the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Well, you're welcome. Great. You're welcome, and I'm delighted to join you. Excellent. So can you tell me a little bit, uh, maybe just to begin with, uh, uh, an overview of, of the MacArthur Foundation and then maybe a little bit about what your specific role is? Sure. So the MacArthur Foundation is a little more than 30 years old. We're a global uh, private philanthropy headquartered in Chicago. We also have offices in um, India, Mexico, and Nigeria. And uh, the foundation is probably best known for our fellows program, which the news media likes to call the Genius Grants, where we award uh, major stipends, no strings attached to a cohort uh, every fall. We've also now, um, I think, become known um, in the social sector for something we call 100 and Change, which is a competition to award a $100 million grant to one organization with one big idea to solve a, a serious problem in our world. Um, but beyond those two things, we, we have um, what we call big bets, focused on such things as uh, reducing nuclear risk, criminal justice reform, climate change mitigation. Um, we also have enduring commitments to work in our hometown, Chicago, where we do a lot of grant making, for example, around arts and culture, which is, um, and Chicago is the only place where we do that. Um, and we have a very significant program focused on independent journalism and new media. Um, so that's our foundation. Um, we have about $6 billion in assets, and we make 
close to three hundred million dollars in grants every year. Right, right. That's uh, I, I'm familiar with uh, quite a bit of your work, but um, I, I wasn't aware of, of all of it. And uh, certainly the uh, recent uh, commitments and an interest, I guess, in impact uh, investment is, is also uh, interesting. And I, I, can you tell me a little bit about your role there, Deborah? Absolutely. So I'm managing director for impact investment. It's a practice we've actually had for 30 years for virtually all of the foundation's history. Um, we've deployed um, uh, in excess of a half billion dollars since we began making impact investments in the mid-1980s, and we maintain a specific allocation for our impact investment work, um, and that happens to also be a half billion dollars. So at any given time, we can have a half a billion dollars of impact investments, um, commitments outstanding. Um, and we use impact investments um, in two ways. One is that we use it as an added tool to advance some of our grant-making strategies. So we um, work with programs where investment and finance are a relevant um, modality, and we tightly integrate the impact investments within that selected program strategy. We did this for 15 years with a major initiative focused on preserving affordable rental housing across the U.S., where we had at the heart of that initiative a whole portfolio of impact investments, but then we also had grants that we were making to support peer networks, policy, and research. Currently, the program strategy that we're most focused on is climate change uh, and climate solutions, and we have a cluster of investments that is um, uh, taking shape that will focus primarily on renewable energy in India. So that's the first modality, is really tightly integrating impact investments in a way that directly advances a program strategy and that amplifies the impact of that program. Um, the second modality is that we also uh, play a role and use our capital and we also use grant dollars to help build the impact investing marketplace overall. Um, and our objective there is to see that a larger and more suitable flow of capital can reach some of the outstanding innovative enterprises that are at work on the world's toughest problems, but which present unconventional um, investment profiles and therefore can be difficult for even motivated investors to support. So we look for um, bridge building, infrastructure that we can support that draws capital in from the sidelines and then channels it to um, organizations that may have some of the highest impact around, but which are pretty tough for a conventional investor uh, to to connect with. Great. That's uh, very interesting. You, you, impact investment. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you and uh, what you think is the particular uh, and, and exciting potential uh, for, for impact investing in, in, in the social sector? Well, I mean, to be clear, there's definitely a spectrum of things that count as impact investments, and, and it sometimes depends on who is thinking about it. I mean, I can I share with you where we fit, but certainly the broad tent of impact investing ranges from uh, funds that might be public equity funds with a screen on them to, to keep out um, the so-called thin stocks, tobacco, weapons, and the like. It can be an ESG fund where there's um, an expectation of commercial return that where environmental and social and governance factors are included in the due diligence 
um, around the, the fund's activities, so a more proactive stance, but still a commercial conventional profile. And then you get into a sort of a, the, the area that we occupy where it's really strongly impact-first, impact-led, and where the investment profile may be, in fact, so unconventional that we need to create some type of gap-bridging solution. So uh, we include folks that are intentional in their impact, where that is their primary reason for existence, and where there is a viable business model but it may be that that business model is not a profit-maximizing uh, model. It may be that they're focusing on very low-income people on purpose. And one of the things that might do is put um, a, a constraint around the profitability. I don't want to suggest that high-impact enterprises are always um, in need of capital that's catalytic or in some way unconventional. But I will say that enterprises working in very distressed or undeveloped markets, or working to serve very poor people, um, quite often face uh, profit constraints that can make them um, underfunded, especially uh, relative to their potential. Right, right. And and you mentioned this, uh, I guess, what's a, a kind of catalytic role uh, for investment. Uh, can you talk about some of the kind of structures that you look at here? Um, I mean, one of the goals, as you say, is to, to bring in capital that might not otherwise uh, come into the sector, these kind of uh, investments. Right. And it's also important that catalytic capital be understood as often de-risking an investment um, that may an enterprise, which may eventually become uh, suitable for conventional-minded investors uh, once it has a chance to build a track record. So let me give you um, a couple examples, since I think that will uh, speak to this question of how we bridge capital gaps and how we play a catalytic role, um, be a little bit more concrete. So one example is, uh, is really the case where something is just unproven never been tested before, has high potential for replication, high potential to really multiply its impact, but it needs to get um, through a proving ground period of time. Um, that, an example is the Energy Savers Loan Program here in Chicago. And Energy Savers um, is focused on serving um, the owners of older apartment buildings that are generally not, have no subsidy they're providing affordable housing because they just happen to be older um, housing stock. And they are some of the least energy efficient uh, buildings around. And so the idea of this program was to make small loans to those building owners and then for the savings on their utility bills to be used to pay back the loans after they had retrofitted the apartments to make them more efficient. Um, we thought it was a really uh, important model, a promising model. Um, energy efficiency um, can really make a difference in terms of keeping housing more affordable. But small dollar loans to buildings that already have two, three, four different mortgages and layers of financing um, to be repaid by a, the speculative um, savings on their energy bills, this was not something that a conventional bank uh, was going to support. Um, we provided a million dollars and then later another $5 million to help create a pool of capital, which has been used now to finance 10,000 department retrofits in 200-plus buildings. Thousands of metric tons of carbon is being um, 
reduced each year, and the costs of operating the buildings on average has gone down by almost a third. So it has really been fantastic from that impact perspective. There has only been one default on all of these 200 plus loans. And what has now happened is that the Department of Energy, PNC Bank, Bank of America, and now a whole group of other banks are all now comfortable with this model and this program. Um, and it was because we were willing to take the risk up front to get this through the proof period, and now this is also being replicated in other places in the country. So that's one example. Um, we have others, and you can let me know if you would like me to share those with you. Right, right. That's very interesting. Um, and um, can you talk a little bit about the philosophy? You mentioned the uh, integration, the uh, tightly integrating uh, certainly one section of your impact investment with uh, the, the, the grants and, and, and other projects with the grants that you provide for certain kinds of projects. What's the philosophy there, Deborah? Well, we really see this from the lens of uh, impact, and we're looking at our philanthropic impact as a private foundation, and we're saying to ourselves, how can we maximize that impact? How can we make sure we have all the possible tools in the box, or arrows in the quiver, pick your metaphor, um, and so how can we make sure that if financing, if investment is a relevant part of the strategy, that we're using the right tool? We also see it as a way to really maximize um, the impact we get from grant making. Something like this Energy Savers Loan Fund that I shared with you, we could have supported the demonstration with a grant, but in fact, it was much better that it was a loan because it actually allowed us to show other financiers that this was a viable loan product. So it's really matching um, the instrument to the, to the objective. Um, so we see this as a way of expanding our reach having the right tools for the problems that we're trying to solve. Right, right. Can you talk about the process that uh, social ventures would go through to receive investment from MacArthur Foundation? So I, I would say that there's not, you know, uh, any one uh, specific pattern that is uh, followed in lockstep. An awful lot of the things that we've been involved in over the years are situations where a new enterprise or a new type of intermediary or a new type of lending product is being created. And we're often working in close collaboration with the folks that are doing that creating and with the other financial institutions um, or investors that are part um, of the puzzle. So those things tend to emerge organically from the program strategy. Um, we might even make a grant to help something uh, get um, assessed for a feasibility study to be conducted, for a business plan to be created, um, and it's a very uh, collaborative process overall. We have in the past um, done competitions. We did a, a two different uh, RFP competitions for um, organizations working in the housing field. We did one in 2003 and another one in 2007. And there we spell out in the RFP very specific credentials um, and requirements and organizations. We went through a process where maybe 50 organizations submitted and it was the field was narrowed to 15 that we went through due diligence and we ultimately invested in five. So we, we are all about impact, but we also 
um, believe very strongly that we need to have rigorous underwriting um, and ensure that when we're making these higher risk investments, um, it's well considered because no one is served if we are out there making investments that can't be in under any circumstances repaid. That's not helpful to the organization and it's not helpful to the field of impact investing um, and it doesn't help other organizations that are working hard uh, to return uh, their capital. Right, right. That's very interesting. Can you talk just a little bit about, um, it's quite a basic question in some respects, but uh, what kinds of projects would are more or less uh, likely candidates or or appropriate for grant versus impact investment? I, a big topic, but are there one or two points that you might? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think the most important is whether there is a business model for which financing as opposed to just grants makes sense. So that means is there some type of earned income in general that that we, there, you can use an impact investment as a bridge device where there's a future revenue stream that might even be um, some sort of contract or grants and you're, you're providing bridge capital and working capital to help an organization weather cash flows uh, ups and downs. But uh, predominantly what we're looking for is an organization um, that not only has a, a very clear impact that relates to whichever program it's part of, but we're also looking for that revenue model and, and a viable, sustainable business model so that the organization uh, can take on uh, the debt or uh, take on the equity uh, commitment and have some mechanism to eventually return our capital. Um, I should say that we also do provide guarantees in some cases um, because in many instances there could be an investor that is willing to participate and provide the capital that's needed on the terms that are needed, but only if a partial guarantee uh, is present. And we've done a number of transactions over the years using guarantees. Right. That's interesting. How investment ready would you say are the, uh, in general, the, 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 the organizations that you uh, see and um, how clear do you think uh, they are uh, as to this question as to where their earned income and whether or not they're going to be able to return uh, make a make a return on investment and and the issue we talked about as against investment versus grants that kind of question because it's something that come yeah. up when I, when I talk to social entrepreneurs and uh, some of the the interviewees for this podcast have mentioned this question that sometimes it's uh, it's not uh, fully understood and there's some sometimes some issues around that. I just wonder what your experience is. Yeah, well, I think it's an incredibly important um, question because you know I think the impact investment field um, should and I think for the most part does acknowledge that not everything can be financed. Um, that grants may be the exact right tool for some uh, organization. If you're involved in, um, in policy work, in research or advocacy, these are not situations where there's the kind of income stream for which an investment makes sense. Um, but it, it can also be the case that an organization needs some amount of grant support but then can handle and would benefit from being able to demonstrate its creditworthiness with some type of a, a, a loan. Again, a, a very large proportion of the work that we do has involved, um, in terms of if we look at where our dollar commitment has gone, has involved the creation of new undertakings. 
So uh, let me give you an example. The Housing Partnership Equity Trust is something that was launched in 2013 um, that now has almost $250 million uh, in properties that it, uh, for which, in which it has an ownership stake. It was a joint venture among 13 nonprofits, and they came together and formed an LLC that then uh, created the very first and only nonprofit-sponsored real estate investment trust. Um, we provided equity capital. We were lead, the lead equity capital investor at its launch. Um, it, it actually got underway in 2015, and then in 2015-2016, we provided a liquidity facility to help this real estate investment trust at a critical growth uh, inflection point to bring in $50 million from some additional investors. Um, it was a long journey for this real estate investment trust to take shape, and we did provide, in this case, grant support that um, informed, to help them uh, commission a business plan and to do the forecasting and modeling. So I would say they were investment ready and clear about their business model at the time we provided the capital, but it was still a, a brand new venture and, and unproven. I mean, our hope is uh, before too many more years go by, uh, they will be able to attract capital from private sources based on their track record and their capitalization, and they won't need the support of a philanthropic uh, impact investor at that time. So I would say they were clear, but they also were clear that there were a lot of risks, as we were too. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you look at returns uh, as a, as a, I guess primarily as a foundation? And I know there are uh, some uh, constraints and some important issues there. Uh, but it, can you talk a little bit about returns and and and, and sure. what your expectations are, and uh, maybe advise uh, social entrepreneurs who, who, who about, about how to think about this? Yeah. So I think part of what you're referring to is the IRS, the U.S. Um, tax code regulations governing what are called program-related investments. Yes. Um, and I should say that our impact investment uh, portfolio, the $500 million maximum portfolio, uh, can be used to make program-related investments in situations where that's um, a suitable framework, and it can also be used to make what are called mission-related yes. investments yeah. as well. Um, we really approach each transaction by focusing on the problem we're trying to solve and then from there figuring out what's the right tool. Is it a grant? Is it a PRI? Is it an MRI? We bring that solution forward once we've really unpacked and understood the problem. And we sometimes call that, you know, problem first, tool second. Um, similarly, I would say that interest rates, um, uh, you know, are, are sort of part of that uh, puzzle. Some people believe that the PRI regulations in the U.S. tax code stipulate that it must be a quote-unquote below-market investment. That's actually not quite right. The um, code uh, specifies that there must be an IRS-recognized charitable purpose, yes. and that can often be a challenge for some of the social enterprises because they may do some very good work with high social and environmental impact, but they may not fit in the box of charitable purpose. And then the, the, the other thing that those regulations say is that this investment um, should, in order to demonstrate that it's being made primarily for a charitable reason, should not be an investment that an ordinary investor would make. 
And so that you're, you're making, but for the charitable purpose, you wouldn't make, or an ordinary investor wouldn't make the investment. That can mean below market, but it can just mean that the investment is supporting something that's unproven and therefore yes. unusually risky or that's illiquid. Um, so there are a lot of different factors that go into whether or not an investment meets the, that test. Um, we generally want to see an interest rate if it's a loan. We want to see something. We, we, I can only think of, I think, one circumstance where we ever did a 0% interest rate because it's, I think, a critical, critical um, risk mitigant, and if the organization's trying to prove itself to other investors, it's important to demonstrate um, reliable servicing of debt. Um, we generally, though, would be the inverse of what a conventional investor might do. It's not unusual for us to charge a very low interest rate to something that's quite risky and unproven because that may be all that the business model can bear. Yes. If we've you know, stress-tested it and we want the organization to succeed, it may be that a 1% interest rate is the right thing to do. Um, we've been in equity funds, however, where we are on the same terms as other limited partners, and there we expect um, we might expect double-digit uh, returns. So it really depends on the asset class, and it depends on the enterprise, and it depends on a deep look uh, at its business model. Right, that's interesting. And, and do you find that the uh, entrepreneurs that you, the social entrepreneurs that you you engage with, are they clear about this? Is this an area where they do, do they have a good understanding of, of how to think about returns, particularly when it comes to talking to investors? Um, I would say that um, this is probably is an area where, first of all, the practice of different foundations is is um, quite varied. And um, I, I would say this is probably an area where we could do well to become more explicit about what the framework is uh, for setting that uh, interest rate goal. Right, right. Um, that's interesting. And, and can you talk us about some of the, the ways in which the investments are structured? And I know we talked, touched on this a little bit earlier, uh, the idea of shared loss positions or guarantees, which are probably more clearer, um, but the ways in which uh, you, you might structure uh, transactions in order to bring other capital in. Right. Well, I mentioned the House and Partnership Equity Trust, and that is certainly a good example of what some will call stacked or blended finance. Yes. So there, there was equity capital that came from the nonprofits, the 13 nonprofits in the joint venture. They all put some of their own capital in. Um, uh, MacArthur put in 10 million. The Ford Foundation came in with 5 million. That became the pool of common stock in the REIT, the Real Estate Investment Trust. And then another layer of capital came from Prudential um, in, in sort of a like amount as preferred equity with a, you know, a better position in the capital stack um, and a better return on their capital as well. And then the initial launch used market rate debt as well to get to a $100 million uh, pool. Um, so that's just an example of, again, coming in and playing both a risk-mitigating role but also uh, being willing to accept um, a lower level of return than the preferred equity um, in order to make the economics work. Um, we've done a project here in Chicago again, launched in 2009, that uses what's called a link deposit. Um, it's a program to provide working capital loans to small community-based arts organizations. 
Um, we've partnered with a commercial bank known for its commercial lending. They would not have been willing to bank these arts organizations. They're too small um, and they're too uh, fragile uh, for the, to meet their conventional lending standards. What we did was we placed um, uh, several million dollars on deposit as a CD, as a certificate of deposit at the bank, and pledged it as collateral because these organizations not only lacked um, a traditional business profile, they lacked collateral to be able to get a loan. And this has uh, been a really successful program. Over 25 uh, arts organizations have benefited from it since it began. Um, we've had three losses totaling $120,000, uh, but the program has been in the millions. So that's another use, using a bank deposit as collateral is another way of um, leveraging traditional sources of financing. Um, we've also provided what we would call enterprise growth capital to organizations. Um, we provided a guarantee for a fund where there was a consortium, again, of banks that uh, were not comfortable with certain policy risks, and we provided the guarantee uh, based uh, aimed at alleviating that concern, and that fund raised about $200 million um, and has gone on uh, to succeed without any additional support from us. That, that sounds great, great projects. The blended finance, uh, it, it sounds uh, a, a very uh, a powerful tool, uh, highly customized, I guess. What, do, do you, what kinds of projects lend themselves to, to blended finance, would you say? Because there are many moving parts, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, certainly, again, I'm citing a lot of examples that are related to housing, even the Energy Savers Program is, because um, if you would bear in mind that for 15 years, um, our primary use of impact investments was to advance a strategy around rental housing. So we have a lot of examples um, yes. from yes. that field. I think... Um, you know, that one of the things where, one of the situations in which we see blended snaps make sense is where there's a market gap and a set of customers that are not able to access capital from traditional sources, either, again, because they are unproven or because they have an economic constraint that really flows from the population or market that they're serving. Um, one of the examples of blended finance that is actually not very new, I think, that, again, this is one of these things where there's a new label, but the practice is not new, um, are known as community development financial institutions, or CDFIs, in, in the United States. Um, some people would draw the counterpart as to microcredit organizations abroad, which is loosely uh, correct. Um, CDFIs have existed for um, more than 30 years in the United States, but they've really grown significantly, I would say, over the last 20 years, and there's about a 1,000 of them now across the country working in areas like lending in tribal countries um, where there are Native Americans, lending in rural areas where there's a real dearth of capital, um, uh, lending to uh, nonprofits that are building facilities uh, where the revenue stream is dependent on government subsidy. And I think one of the hallmarks here is there's, there's a reason that those things are not attracting traditional sources of capital. CDFIs are purpose-built to come in and do that work of being patient, being flexible, being high-touch and customized. And 
And that kind of work, which is their, which is their purpose, is expensive. And so they can benefit from having a layer of lower cost capital, um, and then that can blend together with uh, more conventionally priced capital from financial institutions. So yes, yes. Yeah. I think interme intermediaries like that, if you're wanting to help them be flexible, risk tolerant, patient, and have a cost of capital that is workable for the, the um, communities they're serving, that's often a situation where blended finance makes sense. Right, right. Very interesting, very interesting. Now, we touched on uh, the PRIs. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about, about them? I mean, you, you mentioned uh, some um, ambiguities or some questions that uh, lack of clarity sometimes uh, in, in, in people's minds as to uh, expectations under the tax code and so forth. And there certainly uh, seem to be uh, some challenges uh, there. Maybe it's sort of communication or, or so forth. What potential do you see for PRIs? Uh, in, in the next few years. Yeah, I want to be clear. I, I actually don't think there's a lot of confusion. Like if you were to sit down with an attorney that is familiar with the tax code, and it's a, it's a small group of attorneys, um, mind you, yes. that is expert that is expert in um, laws, laws and, and regulations pertaining to private foundations. Yes. There are some really terrific attorneys that know this. I don't think there's a lot of confusion there. I do think that in the sort of general conversation about them, um, they can be kind of viewed very simplistically as, oh, that's just a, you know, a below market investment. And as I mentioned, I think it can really uh, be more complicated than that and more subtle. Um, and it may be the risk level of the investment, it could be the size of the investment, and it could be the illiquidity of the investment. All of those things might make something uh, uh, be treated as a PRI. Um, I think that um, we've, been be we've benefited from the publication of some additional case examples by the, the IRS. Um, this was long in the works. And really what that did was shared practice that were from the kind of leading edge foundations um, that had been doing PRIs for a while and had um, significant legal counsel of their own. Those examples drawn from sort of state-of-the-art practice are now available for everyone to see um, and, and to um, use as a, as a guide as they think about their own transactions. Um, as far as where I think it is going, um, it's a really, really good question. I, I think that it's a very powerful tool. Um, we've had very good results and been very pleased with um, the leverage, the financial leverage, um, and the impact that our um, program-related investments have had. Um, I, that said, I think there's no question that the, um, the impact investment market left to its own, I don't think we're going to see uh, the same surge in activity and dollars deployed as we are seeing right now in the more commercial ends of the spectrum. And that's for obvious reasons. Um, Program-related investments, as you note, um, they can be. They don't have to be. It depends on the project at hand. But they can be very um, high touch. Often that's the whole point, is to provide customized financing. Um, that's suitable and workable for the recipient. Um, 
they are not generally profit-maximizing investments. That's another reason why I think um, the market is more likely to grow on the commercial end of the spectrum. So at the same time, I do see efforts taking shape to create uh, structures that help people participate in PRI and PRI-like investments. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, it, it is uh, certainly uh, uh, it's just a very interesting area, and I, and I spoke to Jim Sorensen in detail about this as well, and he's uh, very uh, interested in, in the PRIs. Um, uh, a question which I'm going to uh, uh, put a bit earlier, and I probably should have just asked this. Um, can you distinguish, can you talk about... Uh, from your perspective, the difference between a PRI and an MRI, and also is is that invisible to uh, a social entrepreneur? Does it matter to him um, one way or another? So I think, as I mentioned before, the single biggest difference is that a program-related investment must um, the dollars, the proceeds of that investment, whether it's a loan or equity investment or a guarantee that gets activated must fulfill an IRS, Internal Revenue Service, recognized charitable purpose. It, it cannot just be that you think that what their organization is doing is good. It might be. The question is whether it meets a very specific set of um, allowable uses exactly the same as a grant. A grant has to meet an IRS charitable purpose. And, of course, everything we're talking about here is relevant for a U.S.-based private foundation. It's not applicable as elsewhere. So that's the single biggest difference. And that would be felt by the enterprise because you might um, have to find some way to carve out and to target the proceeds of the program-related investment to a certain activity that was seen as charitable, whereas the business as a whole might not be engaged in, in what would be seen as a charitable purpose. Um, it, it is the case that it has to meet this ordinary investor test where an ordinary investor would not make the investment, meaning it's too risky, the return's too low, the size is too small, the transaction costs are too high. Um, there's some type of barrier that would keep an ordinary investment on the investor on the sidelines. The flip side is actually required for a mission-related investment. That investment needs to be um, significantly like other investments from a fiduciary standpoint. The foundation will be subject to its um, various fiduciary rules, and notwithstanding um, some helpful guidance that um, was delivered last year, the mission-related investment, the number one regulation that has to be satisfied is it cannot run afoul of what's called the jeopardizing investment prohibition. Private foundations are not permitted to knowingly make what's called a jeopardizing investment. Um, and there are different ways in which that is determined, but that's the, the, the main difference. One has got to work within the confines of the regular fiduciary rules for the endowment of the foundation. The other has to really satisfy the charitability tests that are used for grants. Thank, thanks, Deborah, for the clarification. Now, you talked about this focus on big bets. Um, can you talk about this in the context of the MacArthur Foundation's impact investment philosophy? Sure. I think we have two ways in which we connect. So one is 
as I mentioned at the beginning, the impact investment team is working with our climate solutions team. Climate solutions is one of our big bets, and I have a member of my team who is working closely with the the grant-making colleagues there to develop a strategy that will advance what we're trying to do in the climate arena, in particular in India. So that's so one way that we connect to that big bet frame is that we may be part of uh, a big bet um, as we go forward. The, the second thing is really the um, work that we're doing to try to help build out the impact investment marketplace and to make it easier for capital to come in from the sidelines um, and be involved in high-impact transactions, be involved in PRI-type transactions, for example. Um, here's a, an example from our recent work. We created something a year ago called Benefit Chicago, and it's a $100 million collaborative between ourselves, the Chicago Community Trust, a, a community foundation, and the Calvert Foundation, um, a well-known global intermediary in the impact space. And what we have created and what is in motion now and we're very um, proud of is a mechanism whereby MacArthur Foundation capital from our impact investing pool is being combined together with uh, investments by the Chicago Community Trust and their donor advised funds, as well as investments from people who might want to invest as little as $20 or they might want to invest several thousand through their brokers and we have um, investors committing, you know, multiples, uh, multiple millions of dollars. The goal is for $50 million from MacArthur to be matched by $50 million from outside investors, and then we are deploying that capital, um, really as we speak, uh, into an array of social enterprises uh, and ventures all focused on Chicago. Um, and that was really uh, launched because we believed that there had to be some way that we could share our impact investing capability with others who want to be part of this marketplace and in the high impact space, but who lack the, the dedicated teams, um, the time, the expertise. That's very interesting and brings uh, me on to maybe one of the final questions, which is uh, the potential really uh, for impact investment going forward. It's uh, tremendous momentum, yet in many ways uh, does remain uh, niche, I guess, in the context of the scale of, 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 of global finance. And I'm just wondering, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how you see this sector distinguishing no between the commercial side of uh, things where more commercial type investment is coming in as well as the more impact first type investments. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's a dynamic time. It's a very exciting time. There are new players all the time, particularly on the commercial end of the spectrum. Uh, but, you know, as we were talking about a minute ago, I mean, there really is no straight line or easy line that you go from interest uh, to that intention, to that impact. It really is going to take infrastructure if we want some of the surges in capital to flow to things like um, energy, unproven but promising energy efficiency programs or to flow to community-based arts and culture organizations looking uh, to improve their cash flow, to conserve forest land, to finance off-grid solar in India. For these things, um, to be something that, that folks widely can participate in, we're going to have to put um, 
send real capital to work in new kinds of intermediaries and infrastructure, marketplaces, holding companies, um, blended finance vehicles, as we talked about before, because there isn't any way in which we're ever going to get around the asymmetry between the financial needs and profile of many enterprises and the financial needs and requirements of many investors. There just is that asymmetry. The challenge before us is to work on bridging those gaps more systemically, not just patching together one-by-one one solutions. So we really think there's a time before us now to think about market making, um, to think about how it is that we efficiently mobilize capital, how do we mitigate risk more efficiently, how do we blend capital more efficiently to adjust returns, and how do we improve liquidity for investors so that they will and can participate. That's interesting. And is there a distinct role, do you think, for foundations here, Deborah? I do think so. I, I believe that we are on a frontier just as we were 30 years ago when uh, MacArthur joined Ford and Packard Foundations and we were some of the first to be experimenting with this tool we now call impact investing. Um, and you know, we spent 15 years experimenting across a whole variety of sectors, education, women's health, organic agriculture, lots and lots of different fields. I think today, we're seeing new kinds of market-making platforms, products, um, intermediaries taking shape, and I think foundations can and should be on the vanguard, on the front lines of supporting that new market infrastructure and helping it come to fruition. That's a, a, a great vision, um, and I'm just wondering, can you maybe finally just look forward for a few years and talk a little bit about the, the uh, vision for the impact investment of the MacArthur Foundation. Well, I, I hope that we will be well into our work uh, in climate change in India um, and possibly adding other components to our climate change related investing, that's for sure. I, I hope that we will not only meet but exceed our $100 million goal for Benefit Chicago. We've certainly um, identified um, massive demand in the marketplace and really high-quality demand, and we're very excited by the range of innovation and, and impact objectives that we're seeing. So I hope Benefit Chicago will be able to grow beyond its initial um, goal. I think that um, also I hope that we will find a way to really support the market makers I was speaking of a minute ago and that we will have um, found a way to do that in close collaboration uh, with other foundations and institutions and families that share our view uh, about high impact investing and what, that we need more and better ways to help investors um, participate in that end of the spectrum. It's a great vision, Deborah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the great work that you've been doing. And I wish you the best of success in the future. Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts. 
The Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University in Silicon Valley provides rigorous training to help social entrepreneurs succeed with a special emphasis on climate resilience and women's economic empowerment via its in-person and online programs. Since 2003, Miller Center has paired top-level Silicon Valley executive mentors with enterprises from 65 countries. Find out more at www.scu.edu backslash Miller Center.